0: was just morning and you, you could see it. He was probably less than 200 feet above me and it, he had just triggered uh, a pair of 500 pound bombs mm-hmm. and I looked up at that instant and saw the air brakes c- from the bombs right on top of me and I'm saying holy <laughs> <shit."> <laughs> you know, I, I'm about to die here.
1: An excerpt from today's guest. Who served as an American advisor in Vietnam and has written a first-person account of one of the most vicious but forgotten battle engagements of that war. Author and decorated veteran Colonel Keith Nightingale is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest is a special operations legend, He served two tours in Vietnam with Airborne and Ranger units. He commanded airborne battalions in both the 509th and 82nd Airborne. He's received four Bronze Stars for Valor, the Vietnamese Medal of Honor, and is a member of the Ranger Hall of Fame. His book is called, Just Another Day in Vietnam, and Colonel Keith Nightingale joins us now. Keith, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Happy to to serve.
1: Well, we're honored, absolutely. Before we get underway, I just want to reference a review, a gripping account of intense close combat on the ground in Vietnam. Nightingale provides an enthralling, vivid description of battle from both enemy and friendly perspectives that will keep you reading intently until the very end. General David Petraeus, well done.
0: Well, it was a interesting. 10 hours, I
1: guess,
0: (laughs) you know, in one's whole lifespan, something like that occurs. It uh, has an indelible impression.
1: It's somewhat of a a lesser known engagement in Vietnam. Could you kind of set the stage and what the South Vietnamese were facing?
0: Sure, in the course of this battle, we had a number of of our rangers taken prisoner Uh, and they were released later in December and came back. <clears throat> and they all independently had this uh, description of the battle itself from the other side and why. Uh, specifically, that the head of Cosman, who was the, basically the chief of staff of the North Vietnamese and VC in the South, Win uh, Chi Tan. Uh, decided that as a matter of strategy that they were going to go after uh, the elite units in the Vietnamese Army, Rangers, Marines, and Airborne, as a means of demoralizing the Army as a whole, sort of like what we see today in Afghanistan.
1: Uh,
0: And they selected the 52nd Ranger Battalion, the unit I was assigned to, as their first target uh, for a combination of reasons. Uh, Number one, they could get it in war zone D, which was isolated from the bulk of American capability to support primarily artillery. Uh, And the other was they knew the 18th Arvind Division, which was responsible for the area, would send the 52nd rather than themselves. So this was basically a set up deal. As a result of this, Chi Ton brought in a main force VC regiment that he basically created out of whole cloth. Uh, and these were the best troops that he could find throughout the Ho Chi Minh complex. Uh, they were full up, about 1,500 in three battalions, uh, first-class units. And he made sure that they were first-class by installing some uh, leadership from the top to the bottom. I can tell you from looking at the bodies that these were all fresh troops. They were all teenagers, fresh haircuts, fresh uniforms, brand new AKs and you know, everything you would expect from a frontline unit. Mm. Uh, So they were really loaded for bear. Uh, and he had an excellent plan to isolate the Rangers from uh, U.S. support, uh, which he knew would be critical to the success of the VC themselves.
1: How many troops did they have?
0: Uh, we had about 450 that we landed, and they had probably 1,500, of which probably 500 were in the base camp, supposedly a company sized base camp we were after, uh, marginally occupied according to the informant who was obviously a plant. Uh, when we got there, there was a little over 500 in the base camp. And then in the evening, under the cover of the fog, uh, they were able to bring across the Dong Nai. Uh, an additional probably 800 troops, as we discovered uh, during the uh, the next day's actions.
1: So you were outnumbered?
0: Uh, grossly. Over and of course, that years. was the plan.
1: Your casualty figures were high. I read that all but 150 soldiers were casualties.
0: Yeah, initially, uh, after the action, and we were back at our original perimeter, uh, where we were waiting for the for, to, for the helicopters to come in to take us into the area. Uh, Captain Shine, who is the senior advisor, uh, asked me to check the perimeter. You know, just go check the perimeter, see what we got. Right. Uh, I went around and I counted a total of 32 people, uh, which included some wounded. Uh, and I came back and I reported, hey, we I found 32 people, you know, by head count in the perimeter and he just kind of looked at me and I looked over to Major Hep, and he was intently studying the map, smoking a cigarette and figuring out how he was gonna do a counter-attack. I mean, it was that mentality that he had that actually saved us. Later on, we, we recovered additional troops, about 150 altogether. Uh, so of the 450 that went in, uh, we had a base of about 150 survivors.
1: That's uh, that's, that's pretty intense.
0: Uh, yeah, it was 23 M16 magazines. Wow! <laughs> Jeez.
1: Now you had only been in country for 45 days. Was this your first engagement in the country, or had
0: uh, actually it was my second, but the first of intensity. Uh, the first was down in the rung on a, a boat patrol. Uh, I had an engagement there, very minor, a couple of VC stay behinds. Uh, this was obviously the very first major engagement uh, that I had. And you know, I you know, I told myself at the end of it, hey, this is, <laughs> I've been in country for 45 days. You know, how am I going to live through the next 12 months before I can go home? <laughs> uh, you know, being an advisor is actually a misnomer. Uh, <clears throat> we weren't advising them on anything. They were true experts and really good. We, you know, they were t- our teachers in military tactics. Uh, in combat, what we did, uh, what I did as the deputy advisor, is I managed all the U.S. support. The tact—I was essentially a glorified forward observer. I brought in the tactical air, the helicopter gunships, the U.S. artillery. I fired and adjusted uh, the in the night. The uh, AC-47. Uh, gunships, you know, whatever the U.S. had mm-hmm. is what I would coordinate. Uh, and Captain Shine as the senior was responsible for the coordination between the battalion and the 18th Arvin Division, who was our superior at that time.
1: Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description. Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. If you're enjoying this episode's focus on Vietnam, be sure to check out my earlier episode with Colin Cahoon, author of Mended Wings, the Vietnam War Experience of Ten American Purple Heart Helicopter Pilots. You know, I've known a lot of Vietnam vets uh, through my career and my personal life, and there's probably some out there, there has to be, that were not shot down. But I have to tell you, I've never, I have never—I don't recall ever meeting one. All of these all these guys, even if they weren't injured, and there are a lot of them who are uh, Purple Heart recipients, but all of them were shot down at least once, twice, sometimes six to ten times. They were definitely the, the, the pointed end of the spear of the American military yes. effort, and they, they took a disproportionate amount of uh, beating as a result. You'll find the episode in the past episode listings on your podcast app, and I hope you can check it out. Were there moments in the battle, obviously, went over several hours, were there moments in the battle that stand out to you?
0: Yeah, I guess there were several. Uh, The first, of course, is my initial engagement. Uh, I triggered, or my little element as we were moving from the uh, LZ to the uh, base camp, uh, triggered a guard. And he was probably 20 meters in front of me. And I can remember, it frozen in my mind today, the cone of fire from his AK at me. And I just instinctively reached up and I had it on automatic and hit him. And he had a grenade vest on uh, with his little stick grenades and it blew up. And I can just remember the cone of fire, then the explosion from him. Uh, you know, that got us started, uh, of course the constant engagement we had that night and then the next morning, you know, in terms of, again, images that are burned forever, uh, Captain Shine had arranged for massive tactical airstrikes to come in in support of us, uh, to basically save us. We were very small perimeter then. it was really the Alamo. The only thing that was going to save us was this tack air. Well, the first bird came over and I looked up, there was a little hole in the canopy. And I looked up and it was a Canberra bomber, which was a uh, fixed wing, uh, very you know bright, shiny aluminum and was just morning and you, you could see it. He was probably less than 200 feet above me. And it, he had just triggered a, uh, a pair of 500 pound bombs. Hmm. And I looked up at that instant and saw the air brakes from the bombs right on top of me. And I'm saying, holy (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm about to die here. Uh, Fortunately, they went further ahead and they didn't. Uh, But, you know, those were sort of the mind's images Uh, and then of course, as I mentioned, walking the perimeter with 32 people later and kept planning a counterattack. I mean, it was just classic,
1: right? That's, uh, it's just, it's mind boggling.
0: I was just going to say, you know, you do what you do and you have to do it. Uh, I'm sure that there were thousands of similar incidents and experiences throughout the war you know, that's kind of why I came up with the title, you know, Just Another Day. You know, nobody other than the participants is aware of what this battle was. Uh, It was significant or insignificant, depending upon your point of view, and it was highly personal uh, in a very impersonal situation. Uh, So, you know, I, I just say that, you know, for the million plus people that went there was just another day.
1: Yeah. Another hard day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another hard day. You know, every day, every day is a challenge.
1: Yeah. Shifting to another war. You give a lot of tours, staff tours in Normandy and return there quite often. You gave a tour to a very special VIP. Could you tell me about that tour?
0: In 1984, uh, I took the 82nd Airborne Division over to Normandy for the first time since uh, World War II. And as a result of this program, uh, General Lindsay, who was our division commander, uh, introduced me to General Gavin, General Ridgway, General Collins, and just a raft of veterans. Uh, And they became extremely enthused about this and kind of took it on as a mission uh, to not only educate us about what happened, uh, but also really to go back themselves. Uh, General Gavin sort of took the lead managing the veterans associations and arranged to have veterans meet us on the drop zone in Normandy and take us around to all the primary battle sites. Uh, We had with us the parachute regiment. So uh, we also visited the British sites, Merville Battery, Pegasus Bridge with the originals that were there. Major Howard, uh, Colonel Otway, General Hill. And in the 82nd area, uh, General Gavin reserved for himself Lafayette Bridge which he considered the primary and penultimate example of what the uh, invasion and the airborne were all about. Uh, He had a prime, he was probably in the middle stages of his Parkinson's disease. I knew then it was a challenge and I thought to myself, did I make a mistake by having him come here and try to do this. Yeah. It was a rainy, cold day, about seven o'clock in the morning, uh, and he drove up in in his his car, and his aide, World War II aide, Olson, uh, came out of the car and opened the door, and he was sitting in the back, and he had on his beret with red beret with the three stars, and he had his walking stick. And he was all kind of hunched over. And I'm thinking, oh, damn, I've really, you know, I'm stressing this guy. I never should have done it. Uh, You know, what a bad idea this is. Yeah. Uh, And I went over there to, you know, assist him and open the door and all that. And I'm standing there and saluting him. And he kind of looks up at me. And then he looks over to the side of the hill where all of these airborne troops are arrayed with their berets and their uniforms. And he just kind of stiffened up, got out of the car, took his walking stick, and went over in front of them and commanded the 82nd Airborne at Lafayette for two hours. It was just an amazing uh, force of personality. Uh, he spoke of the battle. He spoke of the people what was going through his mind, what was happening, uh, and then led us down the causeway, you know, pausing to talk about things. Then finally went up to the intersection on the other side and uh, turned around, and he said, you know, this walk that we came, when I look back for the very first time where I had been, There was nothing but bodies. I could have walked from where we're standing today back to the bridge and never stepped on pavement. Uh, You know, it was a highly emotional moment for him and really important to him that we understood what happened there. It
1: sounds like a moment you'll never forget.
0: No, you don't.
1: Did he pass away shortly after that?
0: Uh, I think he lived another two years I see. Uh, and, you know, we, were, we actually became fairly close. I visited in the prior to the deployment. I visited him both at Cape Cod and uh, in his house at Winter Park in Florida. Lots of correspondence with him and General Ridgway uh, on the whole actions in Normandy.
1: Staying with uh, Normandy, you were involved with a film that uh, came out last year called 6th of June. that's really resonated with audiences and, and won many accolades. Can you tell us what your involvement was with that film?
0: Well, uh, Henry Roosevelt and Rylan uh wanted to make a documentary uh, of Normandy and the veterans, as well as the staff rides. Uh, They came over and filmed my staff rides and also interviewed a number of the vets uh, that were there in Normandy at the time. And and at that moment, they really didn't know what the film would look like or what its current central theme is. Uh, They shot my staff rides uh, as well as a walkthrough at the cemetery at Pointe du Hoc. And they interviewed uh, a number of the veterans that were there. Um, When they came back, uh, as it evolved, they saw that the core of it really was the veterans and their spirit and attitude. And they kind of call it the goodness and purity of what they did at that moment. You know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so they overlap kind of the cold facts of D-Day. This is what happened here. The numbers, blah, blah. With the human faces that actually did it. Uh, And it was, I think, a highly creative process. Uh, I provided voiceovers and narrations basically with my staff rides, which they melded into what the veterans said and did and then just some very good imagery uh, of the location. They captured the spirit of the place and the people, uh, and that's a fairly rare occurrence.
1: I agree. Um, It's a wonderful film. Very striking. The book is called Just Another Day in Vietnam. Keith, it's been fabulous having you here. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, My pleasure, and... I I hope people gain something from it. Soldiers are unique things, and we need to honor what they do, both individually and collectively.
1: I couldn't agree more. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be esteemed military historian and Temple professor, Dr. Gregory Irwin discussing the aftermath of Yorktown, and the following episode will showcase the Tribeca Screen documentary film, 6th of June. Producer Ryland Sorov will be
0: here. Our hope with the film is that when we were making it, it was leading up to the 75th anniversary, and we realized, you know, it doesn't matter what happens with the film, or where it was distributed, or who got on board, or... Awards that it you know we might have received or places that the film was screened. It was really just about how can we impact these people who gave us so much.
1: That's all coming up. And if you like what you hear, please share the show on social media and follow me on Twitter
0: at Rob Child.
1: I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear.
0: Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.
1: I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page Click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait, become a member today, and thank you for your support.